Well, here we are. This isn't meant to be a disclaimer, but I have, I don't think I've ever felt quite this way about something that I felt the Lord wanted me to say to this body. I could probably just about throw up right now. And wouldn't you remember that, huh? I mean, no matter what I said, you would always remember that. I, I remember throw-up throw stories are some of my favorites. So, never seen it happen. Never seen it happen from the pulpit, though. Yes. Uh, before I do that, though, I do have a quick announcement that, uh, that we missed, and that is Rescue Team Ministry. Uh, you have a meeting immediately following church, and so you'll have to listen to me here. If you are a teenager and you're interested in Camp Barnabas, we are going to meet in the blue room here, in the prayer room, and if you are part of the rescue ministry, you'll be meeting up in the fellowship hall. So I wanted to make sure that everybody under, understood that. If someone isn't here then, uh, and they wind up in a different spot, please just direct them, okay? Well, I am. I think I want to start off with a verse of scripture, and I guess this is going to serve as the text, although I hope to look at a few other verses as well. Like I said before, I, I don't think I've ever felt this way about anything I felt the Lord put on my heart to share, and it's one of those things that I, 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 think, it's, I think it's one of those now things that God wants to communicate to us. I don't know that I've ever felt as disqualified or unqualified to speak on something like this. And so I'm going to try not to be in over my head and talk about things that I don't know about. Instead, I'm going to try to express what I believe God has been putting in my heart about this topic and hopefully what I think is on his heart as well. And I will tell you right now that you can agree to disagree with me about some of these points and, and I'm okay with that. We have at least three elders in the house here, and they can come and shut off my mic at any time if they feel a need to. Otherwise, we're going to just go for it and trust that the Holy Spirit, who is our counselor and our teacher, will teach us things from the Word. So, if you've got a Bible and you want to turn there, you can turn to the book of Luke, chapter 9. We're going to be reading verses... 51 to 55. I'm actually going to put my Bible down here. I'm going to read it from the paper that I have because I have a different translation that I, that I like a little bit better. Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 55. Now when the time was almost come for Jesus to be received up to heaven... He steadfastly and determinedly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before him, and they reached, a certain, uh, they reached and entered a Samaritan village to make things ready for him. But the people would not welcome or receive or accept him because his face was set as if he was going to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John observed this, they said, Lord... Do you wish us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? 
But he turned and rebuked and severely censured them. He said, you do not know of what sort of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them from the penalty of eternal death. And they journeyed on to another village. Let's pray. Lord, I have never felt more of a need for you in trying to explain what I believe is on your heart. Lord, these are my brothers and sisters here, many that I've known for a long time. And if there's one thing I do believe about this church, it's that we want to honor your word, we want to honor you, and we want to accomplish the mission for which we exist. Lord, I'm asking today that you would take this subject and you would put it in the context of your word and your heart and that you would help us to come maybe always not to a full agreement of the details, but I pray, Lord, that as a body we would learn to express your heart to those that you have called us to. And that when the world looks at us, that they would see how real you are because of the way we love each other and the way that we're able to love them. Lord, I pray this so that you would be glorified and lifted up. Amen. I think that there are times and seasons that are significant, some more than others. And I think it's important for us as believers to be able to recognize those times and seasons. The sons of Issachar were noted because the word says that they understood the times and seasons that they lived in. This is a part of the Bible where it talks about the different the different tribes and what they contributed to the armed forces of the Israeli army. And as you look at the different tribes and how many warriors they had, uh, you'll see a lot of 40 and 50 and 70,000 that one tribe or another would be able to contribute to the armed forces. Issachar was a little different. They only sent 200 to the army. And they weren't fighters either, but they were strategists because they understood what God wanted them to do and how to accomplish what God had called them to. And I think that we're living in times right now where as the body of Christ, it's important for us to understand where we're at and what's going on and what God has called us to and what we need to do about that. If you have a TV, you probably can't turn it on lately without being reminded that this is an election year. I don't know about you, but I am not a big political guy. Uh, Pastor Bruce is. He, he, he loves that stuff. He thrives in that stuff. Uh, personally, I, I do not. But you can't get past the fact that there are things right now that are shaping our country that we need to be involved with. In Minnesota, we're not only going to vote to elect the leader of the free world, but we also have some homegrown issues as well. And one that's getting a lot of attention this year is a constitutional amendment that, if passed, 
uh, will be an, be an amendment to the Minnesota Constitution that will define marriage as being between one man and one woman. Now, I am not going to attempt to give you all the nuances about this law and how it affects things. Uh, there are better people than me, smarter people than me, uh, who have done this. Uh, I think it is important for us to understand a little bit about what's at stake, though. Uh, Rich Dobler, who is the pastor up in Cloquet, uh, has been doing a lot of research on this. Uh, he's actually talking about this topic up at his church in Cloquet today. And I'm going to read you just a little bit about what he wrote down, uh, because I think that he would probably be able to express it a little bit better than I can. Uh, the wording on the ballot is going to say this. Shall the Minnesota Constitution be amended to provide that only a union of one man and one woman shall be valid or recognized as a marriage in Minnesota? And you have the opportunity to vote yes or no. Yes, uh, because you want this passed and added to the Minnesota Constitution. No, if you do not want it passed. Uh, some of Rich's observations about what this would or would do, he says a yes vote would reaffirm the traditional understanding of what marriage means in our society, a union of one man and one woman. It would prevent expanding the definition to mean anything more. It would not endorse any form of intolerance or discrimination. It would not limit any individual civil rights, and it would not prevent future legislation from establishing same-sex civil unions in the state of Minnesota. A no vote, and by the way, if you leave it blank, that counts as a no vote, would offer no definition of marriage. It would imply that marriage should not be limited to a union between one man and one woman, and it would also remove the boundary that now excludes other types of unions from marriage. Um, polygamy could be one, for instance. Those that are opposed, and if, you, if you're on Facebook at all, uh, which I am a lot, uh, you'll find that there is a lot of, there's a lot of chatter about this more and more as election day comes. And it's kind of interesting to me as a youth pastor to look and see what young people are saying about this measure. It's, uh, uh, it's very interesting. I'm not really here to talk about that. But, but those that are opposed to the amendment say that it will discriminate against gay, against gay couples, um, could create an environment of hostility towards the gay community. Um, it'll, uh, it will not offer them a lot of rights that they feel that they, that they should have. Uh, those that are voting for the amendment say that it's important to protect the sanctity of marriage as it's currently defined between a man and a woman. And it's because of issues like this that the social landscape, uh, the cultural landscape of our nation is changing. Uh, but, you know, to be honest, I think that that's been happening for decades now. Now, today, I am, I'm not going to try to explain any more to you about what the marriage man amendment will or won't do. Uh, I'm not going to try to sell you on the merits of it. I'm not really even going to tell you how I think you should vote or how I'm going to vote. What I do hope to do, though, is I hope to get you to start talking about it because this is an issue that will help define where this country goes. And as I told the boys in my class, this, my 9 o'clock class this morning, this is probably going to affect them more than it even affects me. I also hope to explain what I see as God's heart towards those that the community of faith disagree with, especially on social issues. And I'd also like to somehow challenge us as believers to consider our role and our methods 
in engaging and impacting people that are on the other side of the aisle. So I'm going to ask you to be patient with me. Uh, you are not going to get to give me your opinion today. I'm just going to give you mine. And I hope that it is based in God's word and in the fear of the Lord. And we'll just have to take things from there. I was asked this last week if I would put a sign up in my yard. This is the sign. It says, vote yes, marriage one man and one woman. Uh, there are, you've probably seen a lot of signs like it uh, all over. Uh, you've probably seen some signs that go the other way as well. And I was asked by a person, uh, not from this church actually, but a person that I really love and respect and know uh, really loves the Lord and really loves his word. And I told this person, no, that I would not put up that sign in my yard. And I said, thank you, uh, you know, I appreciate it, but I, at this time I don't think that that's something that, uh, that I want to do. And they were very gracious and said that, well, you know, uh, I won't judge you for it. Everyone has to do what they feel, but I just feel that I need to stand up for what I believe in. And so we parted ways gracefully, and I did tell them that I would, that I would consider it. Uh, but that's just where I was at this point. Before I tell you why I made the decision that I did, I'd like to make a few other comments as well. Now, I told you I'm not a political guy. I do not consider myself a party man. I vote my values, no matter whether they're Democrat or Republican or whatever. Uh, the things that are important to me, uh, probably the biggest one is, uh, is life. Uh, I like any candidate that likes life, uh, that believes uh, that babies are a gift from God. And that's probably the first thing that I look at. I don't really look at other things. Uh, you can call me a, a one-trick pony, but that's kind of how I feel about it. Uh, like I said, I don't have a driving interest in politics about how the process works uh, or ever really being involved to a great degree. Uh, I believe personally that I'm called to impact the culture in other ways, uh, and this just isn't really the way that I choose to do it or feel that I've been called to do it directly. Also, I, I, if I'm honest... I also feel kind of lost and overwhelmed at times with the whole political process. Uh, I don't think it would be—I don't think it would be out of range for me to say that I, I kind of feel powerless. Sometimes I really do wonder. I mean, what does what does my vote really mean? Do I really make a difference here by going to the polls? I do. I, I never miss an opportunity to vote, but I, I've got to admit that as big as the political machine is in this country. Uh, sometimes it, uh, it makes me wonder, you know, trying to figure out the electoral college, trying to figure out the popular vote and how all that stuff works. And it's like, ah, you know, I'd rather just watch the Vikings play football, to tell you the truth. And yes, that is the truth. Also, sometimes it's hard for me to have a good attitude towards individuals or groups, political groups especially, that stand for things that are the opposite of what I value as a Christian. Uh, there are times when I look at political ads, uh, honestly, sometimes from both sides, and I see, I, I see the, the rancor, uh, uh, the, 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 the mean-spiritedness, uh, and I just, it, it just turns me off. 
Uh, and, you know, it probably tends more to be towards those that I disagree with morally. But, you know, that, that, that sometimes kind of discourages my enthusiasm uh, in the political process. Now, if any of what I've just said applies to you, then I'm going to ask you to, to listen to, with an open heart to the things that I'm going to say after this. I'm going to make some observations. I'm going to offer, I guess, my commentary, and, and I'm going to ask some questions of us too because I think that we're at a place where it's important for us to consider what God has called us to. And I'm going to leave it to you to sort it out and to apply it as necessary, and if you feel the need to corner me after the service... You'll just have to wait a while because I've got a couple other things going on, but I'd be happy to talk to you about these things afterwards. So I'm going to start off with a question, and the question has to do with homosexuality and the way that I think that we view this sometimes is the church. The question that I'm going to ask you is this, is this sin worse than other sins? Does God look at homosexuality as different? than other sins. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it, but you can write it down if you want to. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders will inherit the kingdom of God. An observation is I think that we as Christians tend to demonize the sin of homosexuality more than we do other sins. Now, do I think that this is maybe more of a deviant behavior than just normal sexual sin between a man and a woman? I guess I probably do. But I'm not convinced that God looks at it a whole lot differently when it comes to judging it. I can find many more verses in the New Testament that apply to sexual immorality, which could involve both a man and a woman, than I can find on him addressing the topic of homosexuality. And I think that it's important for us as a church to have a very clear idea of how God looks at sin. We love to categorize it in part, I think, because we're involved with it. Because there are things that we are caught up in sometimes even as believers. Sometimes sexual immorality, pornography, other types of sexual sin. And I think it's very easy uh, for those of us who aren't involved in that sin to think that that's worse than what we might be involved with. Truth is, I don't think God sees it differently. I think he sees all sin the same, and he will judge all sin. How righteous is your anger? How righteous is your anger in this area? The text that I read is a story that uh, I don't know if that it really gets talked about a whole lot. Uh, I'm going to read it again for you because I like it. Now, when the time was almost come for Jesus to be received to heaven, he steadfastly and determinedly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before him, and they reached and entered a Samaritan village. Now, if you don't know anything about Samaritans, Samaritans and Jews did not get along. Samaritans were kind of the, uh, the, the half-breeds that had, many had intermarried into other cultures, other pagan cultures, and the pure Jews did not want to have anything to do with them. So there was never a time when they got together for barbecues or family picnics. Uh, there was enmity between them all the time. 
And so Jesus was entering a Samaritan village on his way to Jerusalem. But it says that these Samaritans who, uh, this is in the Gospels, the only account that you will find the Samaritans looked at in a negative light in the Gospels. But these Samaritans, because apparently because Jesus was heading to Jerusalem and they knew it, they would not welcome him. They were like, nope, you know what, sorry, you're going there. Those are guys that we don't like, so sorry, but you can't come and hang out with us. And so his disciples, uh, James and John in particular, when they observed this, they immediately came to Jesus' defense. And they said, oh, Jesus, can you believe that? <laughs> the audacity of these people. Hey, I've got an idea. How about we call down fire from heaven and we consume them, just like Elijah did. Because if you remember the story from Elijah, uh, when uh, a uh, uh, king sent his men to go and arrest him, Elijah literally called down fire from heaven and consumed the men. And, you know, that's, growing up, that was one of my favorite stories. I love things like that. I love fire coming down from heaven and consuming people. That's just, that's, that's fun stuff when you're a kid. And they remembered that story, and they thought, you know what, Jesus? They cannot, they can't offend you like that. They, they can't talk to you like that. We want to come to your defense. You know what? Get, just tell us the word, and we will call down fire, and, and we will, we'll, we'll take care of this. And you know what? No one will ever reject you again. It's a nice thought. And Jesus' response to them, I think, is, I think it probably surprised them. But he turned and rebuked and severely censured them. And he said, you do not know of what sort of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them from the penalty of eternal death. So here's another question. As the church and as his representatives here on earth, do we reflect Jesus' attitude towards the lost, towards the gay community, to those that's, that hope that this amendment does not pass? Or do we instead come across as condemning, angry, and hateful? Do we remember that these enemies are also souls that Christ died for. And you know, I'll bet you he had that in mind when he said this to them. You know, Jesus knew where he was going in just a few days. He knew what was about to take place. And he also knew on whose behalf he was doing this. And I think that his well-meaning disciples thought that this was all about them and all about the Jews. And maybe didn't realize that he was going to pay for the sins of not just the Jews, but the entire world. Do we remember that these enemies are also souls that Christ died for? And that if they are eternally separated from him on the day of judgment, that he will be heartbroken to lose part of his creation? James 1, 19 and 20. Understand this, my beloved brethren. Let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to take offense and to get angry. For man's anger does not promote the righteousness that God wishes and requires. If we're not careful, I believe that we as believers can easily dehumanize those that we disagree with so that we can have a target for our anger. And I don't know if that anger is always righteous. Or are we willing to hear their stories with hearts of compassion? Now, I think of some of the people that Jesus ran into, some of the sinners 
people that we would all agree with, that these people were sinners. Think of the woman at the well who had been married five times and was living with a man in sin. And I think of Jesus' conversation with her at the well. And I can't find a condemning word. It's not that he didn't call her out on her sin. But somehow at the end of that conversation, instead of feeling condemned, this woman somehow felt free enough to invite all of her friends and all the people that she knew to come and hear this man who told me everything about myself. Yet somehow as he was telling her about herself, it seemed that he did it in a way that, that didn't separate him from this woman. Think of Zacchaeus, a wee little man, a wee little man was he, a tax collector, someone who was despised by the general Jewish population because everybody knew that this man was dishonest and that if he had an opportunity that he would take what you had and use it for himself. And yet when Jesus sees Zacchaeus hiding up in a tree because he knew that there was something in Zacchaeus' heart that wanted to be right with God, he chose to see that instead of the sin that was probably more evident. And as a result, something in Zacchaeus' heart changed. The adulterous woman caught in the middle of adultery. And once again, Jesus had an opportunity to shake his finger and to say, you filthy woman, how could you do that? How could you dishonor me like that? There's judgment for you, because surely she deserved judgment. And you know what? That crowd that had the rocks off to the side, that had brought her before Jesus, they were all over that. They were ready, rocks in hand. And yet instead, Jesus reached out to this woman, and he told the crowd that looked so self-righteous, tell you what, you who have not sinned, you go ahead and throw her, throw the first rock at her. Gave him permission to do it. And yet, when they apparently examined their hearts, they found that there wasn't a one of them that was qualified to do it. And the only one that was, wasn't willing to. We had a woman in this church. Not too long ago, some of you might remember, there were two of them. It was a gay couple. And they sat right over here in the front, Sunday after Sunday. For those of you who haven't experienced that, the first time you do, there are a lot of thoughts that go through your mind. Usually the first one is repulsion. Like, how can they be, how can they be there? How can they be here? They must know that they're not right with God. And I think it's so, it's an easy road to look at people like this and, and to point out what's wrong with their lives especially when we don't know them. If you would have gotten to know these ladies, there's one in particular that I'm thinking of. You got to hear her story about how she was abused as a young girl by someone very close to her, how she was hurt, and she was still carrying that hurt to that day. And she would even say things like, I know what we're doing is wrong, but I can't trust a man. You know, I think Jesus had that insider info on people. 
I think he was able to see past their sin into what was really going on in their hearts. And I think sometimes as believers, it's very easy for us to almost willingly ignore who they are and to just see what we want to see, which is what's wrong. Do we even like the unsaved? I mean, if you're really honest, do we really even like them in our church? Because they're not like us, you know. They don't talk like us. They don't act like us. They don't dress like us. A lot of them smoke and they drink. A lot of them swear. A lot of them don't have any understanding about what we understand and who we understand God to be. I think it's easy not to like the lost. I think it would be much more comfortable for us every Sunday to come in here with just this group of people, people that I can relate to, people that I like, people that believe the same as I do. I think a lot of Christians don't like the lost, and we won't like them until they become like us. It's just an observation. Here's another question. This has to do with the sign and what we as Christians are hoping for come about in this election. How does a political victory, if this marriage amendment gets passed, how does a political victory help us to accomplish the mission of Jesus? If we win this battle, if we win this fight, and it goes through the way we hope it does, how does this help us accomplish what Jesus came to earth and died for. I guess maybe in order to answer that, we have to be pretty clear on what Jesus' mission was, don't we? So, Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. There's one I know by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Now, if you think that there are other things that Jesus came to do besides that, that's okay. But if I had to just pick one out of everything that I've read, I would say that Jesus came to seek those who didn't know him, introduce them to his Father. Nowhere in the Gospels do I see Jesus challenging the current political system. I'm no Bible scholar. I might have missed something. But there's no place that I see Jesus taking on Rome. And Rome was one cruel and wicked empire. I do hear Jesus telling the Pharisees to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. I do hear him saying to Pilate that my kingdom is not of this earth. I see him on the cross with access to 12 legions of angels. He could have called him down any time. What a coup that would have been, huh? He could have just changed everything right then and there. He could have, he could have altered the entire landscape of human history by bringing those angels down and altering his destiny, which would have certainly altered ours. 
But he didn't do that. I'm not a political analyst. But as important as, important as this marriage amendment is to us, I don't see that it passing is going to change the hearts of men. It didn't work in the Old Testament. The law did not change the hearts of men in the Old Testament. It might have guided their actions a little bit, but didn't change their hearts. And I don't see it changing the hearts of the gay community today. And in my humble estimation, I believe that what Jesus is after is changing the hearts of men. I think behaviors change once our hearts are changed. Here's another question. If this amendment does not pass, is it the end of the world? Is chaos going to reign? Is life as we know it going to end? Now, I want, I want you to understand, I, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but I do not say it lightly. I don't know if anyone is old enough here to remember 1938, the War of the Worlds, a television program on Halloween night in which Orson Welles put out a live broadcast that aliens were attacking Earth. And there was no commercial interruption and there were people, particularly in the northeastern part of the country, that actually, because of the timing of it, thought that aliens were actually attacking the earth and that we were, the world was about to end. There were people in the northeast and in Canada that were fleeing their homes because they were afraid that the world was coming to an end. Let's look at a couple of scriptures here and put this in perspective. Romans 13.1, that's a quickie, uh, simply says that all authority is put in place by God. All authority is put in place by God. We have the assurance as God's people, as his children, that the authority of the land is the authority that God has deemed to be there. Now I want you to turn over to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, verses 24 and 25. Nebuchadnezzar was, was, one, of the, uh, was one of my favorite characters. I think uh, you know, he was the king of Babylon for a lot of years. Uh, when they sent the children of Israel into exile, it was to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar was just, this guy was, uh, he, he's the kind of guy that I would have been really afraid to work for. Uh, he was ruthless. But this man had an experience with God that changed his life. And I'll tell you what, I actually think he might be one of the people that I get to talk to in heaven someday because of what he experienced. Uh, verse 4, or excuse me, chapter 4, verses 24 and 25. Uh, Daniel, uh, Daniel gave a, uh, interpreted a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And part of that dream... Uh, in part of that dream, this is what Daniel says to him. Uh, he says, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord the king. 
You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times or seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdom of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Now, before you get out of the Old Testament, turn over to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to start in verse 15. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust in the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? And what image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits encircled, enthroned, excuse me. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Is it possible that as Christians that we give too much credit to the left, to the liberals, to those that we think are running this country? Is it possible that we look at them and we see how big they are and we forget that our God is bigger? That he sits enthroned on the circle of the earth? Do we forget that our God does as he pleases? I can easily forget that when I see election returns coming in that aren't what I was hoping for. And I can easily get discouraged by that. But doesn't God use what looks like defeat to accomplish his purposes? Isn't that what the cross is all about? That at the time in which it looked as if all was lost and we, his disciples lost heart, they scattered, they took off, they were gone because they thought, it's over. And yet it wasn't over because it was all part of God's design because his thoughts are higher than ours. And folks, his plans and purposes are going to prevail. And there is no president, there is no Congress, there is no man, there is no electorate that is going to stop God's purposes here on earth. 
or for our country. So, if you're wondering why I don't have a yard sign, well, as I've considered it, what I think a yard sign may or may not do, well, uh, it'll certainly let people know where I stand. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it might even create a, a conversation opportunity. Maybe someone passing my yard, seeing it. I might have a chance to talk to somebody. That could probably be good. Uh, one thing I'm pretty sure it will do is I, I think it'll probably lump me in with a lot of other people that maybe I don't want to be lumped in with. People who, whose response towards those that we disagree with really are hateful and mean-spirited. You know, I think, that, I think that when people look at a sign like that, I don't think they are any longer interested in what you have to say. I think they know. They, they might be wrong, but I think they know what you have to say to them. And they probably think that it's going to be hateful and spiteful and mean-spirited. And the truth is, I don't want to be lumped in with people like that. Because if I get an opportunity to have a conversation with someone in that part of the aisle, I want it to be one in which we can have a healthy dialogue. And it might create a wall between me and the people that I hope to minister to. What I don't think a yard sign will do is I, I honestly, I don't think it's going to change the mind of anyone who's already determined what they're going to do. I just don't believe that. I don't believe that a sign is that powerful. And I certainly don't believe that it's going to turn someone's heart towards God. And that's why I don't have a sign in my yard. I'm not here to tell you that you shouldn't have a sign. I'm just telling you what I think it will or won't do. As I close, I want to close with a note of hope. I don't mean for this to be a big downer. I hope it's sobering. I, it, it has sobered me having to think about this. But I want you to know, folks, that for those of us who think that America is going to hell in a handbasket, there's hope. But I think you also have to understand where that hope lies. First of all, it lies in God. And I think we need to see the bigness of our God. But also, I think it lies with those of us who call him, Lord. Nowhere in Scripture have I found does God put the fate of a nation on the shoulders of the godless. Instead, he tells them that the blessing of a nation comes when his people follow his ways. So if you'd indulge me, one more Scripture. Would you turn to 2 Chronicles 7.14? And if we're looking for an answer and a way to get our nation to where we think it should be, maybe we can find it here. I think it's one that we probably just about all know, but I think it's also one that we forget. Maybe because then it means that we have more of a responsibility for revival than we would like to have at times. Second Chronicles, chapter 7, verse 14. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal 
their land. I am learning, and I feel very confident in saying this, for my life anyways, I am learning that revival is not a corporate event. I think we think of revival and we think of God's power sweeping through and we think of stadiums and churches and large groups of people coming to the Lord. I'm going to challenge that way of thinking. I think revival, instead of being a corporate event, is a personal transformation. Our country did not get to where it is by all of a sudden a bunch of people just believing wrong things and following wrong ways. It got there because person by person and family by family, we have walked away from following God's word and living it out. That's why for me, I've been talking to our kids so much about what rock-solid faith is. Matthew 7, verse 24 and 25. Rock-solid faith is defined by Jesus as when you hear my words and put them into practice. That's when your faith is solid. And folks, I believe that our nation's current situation, I think it's on the shoulders of the church. I mean, I, I look at, I mean, a marriage amendment. We are all concerned about marriage. And yet the church, there are some polls that show that the church's divorce rate is higher than the church's, or than, higher than the world's. Folks, how can we expect people to believe in God's plan for marriage, being between a man and a woman, when we men and women can't get along with each other. Folks, if we want revival and we want our nation restored, it begins with us. It begins with me. It begins with my family. That's what a grassroots movement is all about. And I believe that revival is going to have to be a grassroots movement. One person one heart, and one family at a time. That's what Jesus came to do. I don't know what your sign is, but I want my sign. I want the sign that people see, whether it's in my yard or in my life. I want it to be the sign of the cross. Would you stand with me? Lord, I would probably be not just surprised, but maybe almost disappointed if I thought that everyone here agreed with what I've said today. And so, Lord, I'm, I'm going to submit this to you, and I'm going to ask, Father, that if I've said anything today that does not reflect your heart and your character, Lord, I pray that you would strike it from our, from our memory. I do pray, Lord, that you would give us your heart, that you would give me your heart for the lost. You came to seek and to save that which was lost, relationship with your Father. Lord, I think sometimes as 
Christians, we forget what it was like before we were Christians, that we were under your wrath as well. Lord, would you forgive me, me, for the times that I have judged the world? Lord, frankly, would you forgive me for the times that I've judged other believers? And I've looked at my sin as less than theirs. Or Lord, for the times that I've looked at the unsaved and I've, I have not been merciful towards them or their deeds because what they did offended me. Lord, it's interesting that you never seem to have been offended by sinners. But you were, however, often offended by the self-righteous religious ones. Lord, I don't know how realistic it is for me to pray that we would all believe the same thing. I don't even know if you're concerned about that. But I do pray this, Lord, that in regards to each other, those within the church, within your body, Lord, I pray that you would help us to love each other as you have loved us. And I pray that that would be a sign to the world True, unconditional love. Maybe especially when we disagree with each other. Lord, I pray that we would be able to be a model of your love. And I also pray, Lord, that you would help us to love the world, to love the sinners, to love those that we disagree with, those that maybe we feel threatened by. And may we understand, Lord, that you are enthroned on the circle of the earth. And that your plans and your purposes will be accomplished. Lord, may that give us, may that give us the security to simply love those that you've called us to. So that the sign that they see is the sign of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.